Welcome to this episode of the John Henry Weston Show. I'm your host, John Henry Weston. We're going to be talking about something very controversial about creation versus evolution, and it's going to be really fascinating. Stay tuned. Let's begin, as we always do, with the sign of the cross. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. I am pleased to be with on the program today someone who has studied this issue of evolution versus creation for a long, long time. His name is Hugh Owen. Hugh, welcome to the program. Thank you. It's a joy to be with you. So, let's get into this issue, first of all, from the sort of 30,000-foot view. What's going on with creation and evolution? I mean, this was universally believed, you know, God's order of creation was believed and taught in schools all over the place until actually very recently in terms of history. Um, and yet now there's been court cases about it to stop it, fights in legislatures to allow people to still teach it in the classroom, and a big debate. Where are we today? Okay, well, the situation today has to be understood in, in the right context the origins of man and the universe is a fundamental issue because what we understand and believe about the origins of man and the universe determines our whole worldview. It determines how we understand ourselves, how we understand the Creator if we believe in creation, and how we understand our relationship with Him. So it's fundamental. And in the last 2,000 years, the Catholic Church has always based her teaching, her whole program of education, on God's revelation of how he created the heavens and the earth and the seas and all they contain, as it was revealed to Moses in the sacred history of Genesis. What happened was, beginning in the 19th century, um, there was a movement to abandon the traditional teaching of the Church on Creation, and to replace it with a man-made hypothesis that everything in the universe came into existence through the same kinds of natural processes that are going on now. And at first there was a lot of resistance to that, but eventually, by really early in the 20th century, the secular humanists, whose whole worldview is based on the assumption that everything has come into existence through a natural process of evolution, through the same kinds of material processes that are going on now. Uh, these people, like John Dewey, basically took control of education here and throughout the Western world, and they began to impose the teaching of this molecules-to-man evolutionary hypothesis as natural science, and they began to work to exclude any teaching of supernatural creation as a religious doctrine which had no place in secular education. Mm -hmm. Now, the irony of that, this, of course, is that neither the evolutionary account of the origins of man and the universe, nor the true Christian account of the origins of man and the universe, is 
something that can be determined through the normal methods of natural science for one very simple reason. The work of creation was supernatural. That was understood and taught in the church from the beginning and by all the fathers and doctors of the church, including St. Thomas Aquinas. So, the very presumption that the origins of man in the universe is a proper subject for natural science is in itself not a straightforward uh, inference from empirical science, it's a philosophical assumption. And the irony is that the secular humanists are actually imposing their religion, because secular humanism is a, a religion, mm -hmm. and the Supreme Court has even recognized secular humanism as a re religion for freedom of religion purposes. But when it comes to the teaching of evolution in the public schools, even though it's the foundation of secular humanism, it's treated as natural science, whereas the Christian explanation for the origins of man in the universe, which is much more reasonable, is banned because it's supposedly the tenet of a religion. That right. This okay. is uh, the situation right now. Okay, so that's exactly it. But what I love about what you're doing and um, is that you're actually taking on the science itself as well. Um, and we're going to talk all about that. But first of all, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and about the Colby Center that you're, you founded? Certainly. I got into this work because my father was the son of a Baptist minister in Wales, brought up in a conservative Christian home who went to university in the 20s and 30s in England and was taught that science could explain the origins of man and the universe through evolution. And my father, like millions of other people then and now, completely lost his faith in Christianity, became a secular humanist, went to work for the United Nations, became an assistant secretary general, co-administrator of United Nations Development Program, after 25 years, retired from the UN, was knighted by the Queen, and then looked at the world and saw that all the problems of the world were much worse than when the United Nations was founded, and determined with the help of the intelligentsia that he knew that the reason the United Nations was not making headway in solving the world's problems was because it wasn't going to the root of the world's problems, which was overpopulation. And the, the argument was, if we cut down on population growth, we'll have enough to go around and all our problems will be solved. And so my dad accepted to become the first ever Secretary General of International Planned Parenthood Federation at the very time when IPPF changed its position on abortion and became the world's number one provider of abortion as well as contraception and sex education. Wow. And he held that position for about a year when he died unexpectedly of a heart attack in London when I was just 16 years old. Hmm. Now, I had been brought up with no Bible, no prayer, no Christian formation whatsoever. But I believe, and I can't get into the, all the reasons why I'm confident that at the last moment, our Lord Jesus Christ gave my father the opportunity to see the truth and to repent. And I firmly believe that as he went down into the depths of purgatory, 
he began to pray for me, his very confused 16-year-old son. Uh, but whether or not the audience is willing to accept that, the fact of the matter is less than two years after my father's death, I received the gift of faith. I was baptized, confirmed, and made my first Holy Communion as a Catholic in the Princeton University Chapel where I was enrolled as a freshman. Wow. Now, at that time, the Catholic chaplaincy at Princeton University was run by Jesuits, and the Jesuit priest who received me into the church gave me a catechism so that I could learn my Catholic faith. But the catechism he gave me was the infamous Dutch Catechism. We call it the Dutch Cataclysm because this is the book that totally destroyed the faith of a once vibrant Catholic community. But this Catechism has a theme that runs through it from beginning to end. And it is this, that we live in a scientific age and natural science has enlightened us so that we can understand everything in our Catholic faith in a new and deeper way. And with this very high-sounding uh, introduction, the authors proceed to sow doubt in the mind of the reader about everything from the existence of angels, of, of Satan, of Adam and Eve, of original sin, of the perpetual virginity of Our Lady, the virgin birth, the intrinsic evil of contraception, and everything you can imagine. Hmm. And so it's an absolute miracle that I survived the Dutch cataclysm and came into the church at all. But mm -hmm. even though I did survive the Dutch cataclysm, it caused a tremendous amount of confusion, and I consider it a very special grace obtained for me by the Blessed Virgin Mary, that I never could really accept this idea completely that anything that, that, that we would learn new things that were true in natural science that would cause us to change the teaching of the Church in faith and morals. And ultimately, I was delighted to discover that at the very time that my dad was being robbed of his faith because there was nobody in his environment to show him the fatal flaws in this molecules-to-man evolution hypothesis. St. Maximilian Kolbe was writing articles and sending them all over the world showing that the emperor of evolution was not wearing any clothes, hmm. that there actually wasn't sound scientific evidence for this idea that molecules turned into human bodies over millions of years of the same kinds of material processes that are going on now. Mm -hmm. And so, in the Jubilee year 2000, we founded the Kolbe Center for the Study of Creation to provide a forum for Catholic theologians, philosophers, and natural scientists who reject this molecules-to-man evolution, we would say mythology, uh, we wouldn't even call it a hypothesis, and to defend the traditional teaching of the Church on creation that was believed and taught by all the fathers, doctors, popes, and council fathers in their authoritative teaching. Right. I, I think this is fascinating because you have amassed for yourself uh, a 
a bunch of, and not only scientists, scientists is great too, because they're able to latch on to the science and show the falsehoods, and we'll get into that. But you also have the theologians and the experts in philosophy who are able to explain how this has undermined the faith. So, I understand also that you and your colleagues have just produced a, a DVD series, in fact, a 17-part series um, called Foundations Restored. So, if you can tell us about that, what's the series about, and uh, why did you decide to make it? Certainly. Foundations Restored is the most comprehensive defense of the traditional Catholic doctrine of creation and the most comprehensive refutation of the principal claims of the molecules to man evolution hypothesis ever produced by Catholics in the video medium. It took us three and a half years. It was a team effort on the part of a large number of, of Catholic theologians, philosophers, and natural scientists. And what we've done in this series is to, first of all, show that the understanding of, or the, the study of the origins of man in the universe is not a proper subject for natural science, because we cannot observe the work of creation. It's something that took place in the past, and all the fathers, doctors, popes, and council fathers in the tradition of the church made a very clear distinction between the work of creation in the beginning, which was supernatural, and what many doctors call the order of providence, the natural order, what we are living in, where God had finished the work of creation, and now he's just holding the work of creation in existence, and everything is operating according to the natural laws that God established in the beginning. Therefore, we can't study what's going on now, and from that, extrapolate all the way back to the beginning to understand how everything came to be. But we show right up front that competing with what we call the creation providence framework, which is the one revealed to us by God as the true framework, and the only one, as we can explain, that really makes sense of what we see, is what we call the Cartesian-Darwinian framework or narrative. And this was the framework that was put forward by the so-called Enlightenment philosophers, beginning especially in the 17th century with Rene Descartes and then Immanuel Kant and others. And what they did was to claim that it was more reasonable to explain the origins of man and the universe in terms of the same material processes that are going on now, instead of this strange idea that things just popped into existence in the beginning. Now, Descartes' works were put on the index because every theologian worth his salt knew that this was complete nonsense. The index meaning a, a list of books that should not be read by Catholics, right? Correct, yes. Yeah. And, and the reason was that every theologian worth his salt in the entire world knew you could no more expect to explain the origins of man in the universe in terms of the natural processes that are going on now than you could explain the origins of the wine at Cana in terms of the natural processes that are normally at work when wine is produced. 
in both cases, it was the supernatural action of God that produced the result. And in fact, the fathers noted that the miracle at the wedding of Cana was the first sign that our Lord Jesus Christ did, and that there were six containers of water, mm -hmm. precisely to show that the divine power by which our Lord instantaneously changed ordinary water into the most wonderful wine that anybody had ever tasted, which had all the appearance of having gone through a long natural process that it actually didn't go through at all, mm. was the same divine power by which he created the heavens and the earth and the seas and all they contain supernaturally in the beginning. And in six days. So. In six days, yes. Yeah. Now, there's an Augustinian minority view which holds that God created all the different kinds of creatures instantaneously, but that is not at all compatible with the molecules to man evolution hypothesis, even though many Catholic intellectuals today like to claim St. Augustine for theistic evolution. They're not really being honest, or at least not being correct in doing that, because all the fathers and doctors agree that the entire work of creation was supernatural. God spoke and it was made, he commanded and it was created. Mm -hmm. So, the point is that right at the beginning of the DVD series, we establish this fundamental truth that what we believe about the origins of man in the universe is not a proper matter for empirical science, mm -hmm. because there is no creation going on now. The only way that we can know how God created the world in the beginning is from divine revelation. Mm -hmm. Now, for the Cartesian-Darwinian framework, the assumption is made that we have to be able to explain everything in terms of natural causes, in terms of the same material processes that are going on now. Mm -hmm. And whereas the church for a very long time resisted this naturalism and even condemned it in the syllabus of errors and at the First Vatican Council, little by little, more and more Catholic intellectuals in most cases without intending to do anything wrong, accepted this enlightenment view that it is actually proper for natural scientists to try to explain the origins of everything in the universe in terms of the same material processes that are going on now. And this is why most Catholic intellectuals today believe that it is perfectly legitimate and correct to give naturalistic explanations for the origins of everything in the universe, from stars and galaxies to every kind of plant and animal, and even for the human body prior to the point at which God infused a human soul into the body of an evolved subhuman primate. But what most of these Catholic intellectuals no matter how brilliant they are, what most of them do not understand is that they have accepted this Enlightenment philosophy which has no basis whatsoever in the entire 
tradition of the Catholic Church. And in doing so, they are actually doing immense harm to natural science. Mm -hmm. Because as we prove in the DVD series, every attempt to give a natural explanation for the origins of man and the universe fails miserably. And what happens is the scientific community ends up investing a tremendous amount of its resources in an exercise in futility. It would be like getting the most brilliant scientists and engineers in the world and saying your top priority is to figure out how the water at Cana turned into wine. And we're going to give you an unlimited budget and the best facilities in the world so that you can accomplish this task. It would be a colossal waste of resources. But that is exactly what is happening in the scientific community to today because the false enlightenment philosophy has been accepted by the overwhelming majority of intellectuals both within the Catholic community and certainly beyond. And as a result, it's now come to be the conventional wisdom, certainly not the teaching of the church, that the origins of man and the universe is a legitimate subject for natural science. And this is the very first point that has to be clarified. So, from that starting point, we go on to show what the authoritative teaching of the Church has been from the time of the Apostles with regard to the origins of man and the universe. And that tells us that the sacred history of Genesis is just that. It's a, an accurate account of what God actually did when he created the world, and it's an accurate account of what happened in the first period of human history leading up to the global flood and the Tower of Babel incident. And then um, we show that this uh, alternative explanation for the origins of man in the universe did not have a very good origin because Descartes actually developed this idea that we could explain everything in the in the universe how it originated through natural processes after leading a very immoral life dabbling in the occult and leaving catholic france for the netherlands where he would be free to think and do and write as he pleased and he himself admitted that he had three mystical dreams in which a spirit of truth possessed him and put him on the path to develop a wonderful new way of thinking that would change the way people thought. Mm. And if you watch the DVD series, I don't think you'll have any doubt who that spirit of truth, alias Lucifer, was that gave Descartes revolutionary ideas that turned the whole current of thought in the Western world away from the tradition of the church, the tradition of St. Thomas and the scholastics, in a totally different direction, which actually has led us away from God and away from the truth. But we don't stop there, because we go on to respectfully present all the claims, all the principal claims of the molecules to man evolution theorists, beginning with Big Bang cosmology, with the Lyellian geology that was developed by Charles Lyell and James Hutton and their disciples, 
which set the stage for Darwin. And then we thoroughly address all the claims of the evolutionary biologists. And we also deal with the claim that there is overwhelming evidence from radiometric dating and from geology that the Earth and the universe are billions of years old. And we show mm -hmm. that in reality, all of this so-called overwhelming evidence is based on certain assumptions which are not only unprovable, they are actually unreasonable. Mm -hmm. And that when we look at the empirical evidence objectively in any area of natural science, it is much more consistent with the traditional teaching of the church on creation than it is with the molecules to man evolution hypothesis. Right. And that, and that, I think, is very, very fascinating. So that the science, in as much as it can look at things, is actually more supportive of creation than it is of evolution itself. Um, one of the things that I found fascinating uh, in, in talking to you earlier is about how this sort of established knowledge about evolution took place, even among Catholic intellectuals. Um, you, were, you were talking about a, a process whereby there were actually known fakes to prove evolution, but those lasted long enough to convince enough people that, um, you know, some were convinced. Then when it was found to be fake, there was another one uh, in place to sort of prove, uh, these are of course the missing link fakes I'm talking about. But if you can explain some of that progression, which allowed for so much of the Catholic intellectual world to actually embrace and accept as, as fact evolution. Yes. In the DVD series, we go into the most important examples of this kind in detail, drawing from the scientific literature. But right now, I want to just zero in, zero in on the most important deception that was successful in convincing a huge portion of the Catholic intellectual elite that molecules to man evolution was sound science. And this took place very early on. You see, if you go back to the time when Charles Darwin published his book, Origin of Species, one of the remarkable things that you will learn or discover is that when Darwin first came out with his book, Blessed Pope Pius IX considered his ideas so preposterous, so absurd, that he did not think they merited a serious reputation. Mm -hmm. We have the foreword that, um, or recommendation that Blessed Pope Pius IX wrote uh, for a book by a French doctor refuting Darwin's wild conjectures. And in that recommendation, po Blessed Pope Pius IX calls Darwin's hypothesis a tissue of fables. And this is one of the reasons why at the first Vatican Council, which was convened 10 years after the publication of Origin of Species, there was not an explicit anathema against evolution, because at that point, it simply wasn't taken seriously. There was, however, an anathema that was handed down by the first Vatican Council, which did, did exclude evolution from serious consideration by Catholics. And that was the anathema which, which said that if anyone says 
that to the dogmas of the faith, a new meaning must be given different than what has been understood and what is currently taught, let him be anathema. Now, you have to understand that at the moment that anathema was handed down, what was the gold standard for teaching and preaching the dogmas of the Catholic faith in the whole world? It was the Catechism of the Council of Trent. Mm. And anybody can go online and look up the first article of the Creed in the Catechism of Trent and see that the Catechism teaches that God created everything by fiat, by willing it into existence. There was no evolution. He created all the different kinds of plants, all the heavenly bodies, all the different kinds of animals, Adam, body and soul, and Eve from Adam's side, supernaturally. And then the Catechism is very clear that then he stopped creating new kinds of creatures because he created everything for us in our first parents, Adam and Eve, we would say in view of the Incarnation and the Immaculate Conception, and only then did the natural order that we are living in now begin. So, it is impossible for us to learn anything in natural science that is true, be it in astronomy, in geology, biology, or any other area of natural science, that will ever contradict the dogma of creation as it's set forth in the Catechism of the Council of Trent. But here's what happened. The most successful propagandist for microbe to man evolution was not Charles Darwin, and it wasn't even T.H. Huxley, although he was very effective. The most effective propagandist for this evolution mythology was the German anatomist Ernst Haeckel. Now, everybody of my generation, I would say of your generation, who took a high school biology or freshman biology course was taught the same fraudulent pseudoscience that Ernst Haeckel successfully presented to the scientific world as fact. What he did was he drew a human embryo, he copied it, and said that the copy was the fish embryo, the chicken, the pig, the turtle, and the salamander at the same stage of development. And this quote-unquote evidence was what he used to totally change the intellectual atmosphere in the space of one generation. And we know this. Ernst Haeckel himself called, liked to talk about at the end of his life evolution's greatest triumph. And do you know what that was? Mm. In 1906, Ernst Haeckel, the most effective propagandist for evolution, probably in history, called evolution's greatest triumph the conversion of the church mm -hmm. from a position of total opposition to this evolutionary mythology to a growing acceptance of it. And he identifies the Jesuits as the principal leaders in this revolution within the Christian community. Wow. And so, what happened was, you had from the end of the 19th century, a growing number 
of leading Catholic intellectuals who became convinced that Ernst Haeckel's forgeries reflected reality and that this was proof, along with other proofs, obviously, that were put forward, like uh, many of which were also fraudulent, like Piltdown Man and Nebraska Man. Here in the United States, Father John Augustine Zahm was one of the leading intellectuals at Notre Dame University, and he embraced evolution at the beginning of the 20th century, and he used Heckel's drawings as his principal argument that human beings descended from a one-celled organism through a natural process of evolution. And then you can see that this continued to, throughout the 20th century. So, in 1970, Father Karl Rahner, arguably the most influential Catholic theologian of the 20th century, writes that he's convinced that he went through all the stages of evolution in his mother's womb. He went through a fish stage when he had gills, and a reptile stage when he had a tail, and then only finally reached the human stage of evolution. So, I hope the audience can see that without Father Zom's acceptance and his success in persuading Notre Dame University to accept the bogus hypothesis of molecules to man evolution at the beginning of the 20th century. There would never have been an honorary degree for Barack Obama, the most pro-abortion political leader in the world, at the beginning of the 21st century, because this fraudulent uh, presentation of evidence purporting to demonstrate that humans are descended by a natural process of evolution from a one-celled organism and that we go through the stages of evolution in our mother's womb, this was the very thing that gave a pseudo-scientific justification to the enemies of life and of the church and of God when they wanted to legalize abortion and abortifacient contraception. Because now they could say, look, you Catholics, even your smartest intellectuals, like Father Zom, like Father Rahner, they recognize that evolution is a fact. How can you people be so stupid as to think that what's only going through the fish stage or the reptile stage deserves all the rights and privileges of a fully developed human being? And yet, in spite of the fact that in the last authoritative magisterial document, on the subject of evolution, which was the encyclical Humani Generis of Pope Pius XII in 1950, in spite of the fact that Pope Pius XII gave no permission to Catholics to believe or teach evolution, told the bishops, you must teach that everything in Genesis 1 to 11 is true, history, and you must teach that every word in the Bible is true, whether it talks about natural science or history or faith or morals. In spite of all of that, the one permission that he did give, the one exhortation, if you will, was to examine the evidence for and against the evolution hypothesis. And there he was not obeyed. Because in 1959, Sir Julian Huxley, the leading scientist champion of evolution in the whole wide world, 
after 100 years of having the evolutionists in control of most of the universities and research centers in the world, he laid it on the line that embryology gave the most striking proof for evolution. And what was the proof in embryology? It was Heckel's drawings. Wow. Well, in 1994, Michael Richardson published actual photographs of the human embryo and the embryos of the other kinds of creatures featured in Heckel's drawings in Scientific American. <laughs> and we have those drawings in the DVD series, those photographs in the DVD series, yeah. and they make perfectly clear that the human em embryo is totally distinct from the embryos of all the other kinds of creatures at the same stage of development. But in addition, each kind of creature is also distinct in its embryonic development from all the other kinds of creatures. Hmm. So here's a, a great example of where real science totally destroys mm -hmm. this um, icon of evolution, which was the principal means that was used by Ernst Haeckel and T.H. Huxley and others to convince Catholic intellectuals that microbe-to-man evolution was so solidly based that we simply had to accept it and somehow accommodate the traditional teaching of the church to this fact of wow. molecules to man evolution. Wow. Unbelievable. So this is the same kind of thing. I just want to make sure our viewers know that in your series, you cover all the current uh, in vogue explanations. In fact, many Catholic intellectuals are, are, are prideful in the fact that there's a Monsignor Lemaitre, a Catholic priest who helped formulate the Big Bang hypothesis. Now we even have a show named The Big Bang Theory, and all of this goes on. You guys address that in Foundations Restored, do you not? Absolutely. We address it in, in, in detail, all the principal arguments and the principal bodies of evidence that are put forward by those who claim that the Big Bang cosmology is settled science. Well, it's not. And we show that the actual observations that astronomers make uh, do not add up with the Big Bang hypothesis. Everything that we observe is consistent with the traditional teaching of the church on creation. And one very important point that is established in the episode on cosmology by Dr. Wolfgang Smith, who's done uh, amazing work as a philosopher of science exposing the rotten philosophical foundations of this Cartesian-Darwinian worldview. One of the points that he makes is that in recent decades, the information that astronomers have been able to collect, not only through their telescopes, but also from the sophisticated space probes that have been sent out into deep space, has now given us absolutely overwhelming evidence that the Earth, far from being, as Carl Sagan would have us believe, like a speck of dirt in a remote corner of a vast universe, is actually in a very favored position at or near the center of the entire universe. Mm. And this is extremely important for the pro-life community, because 
whether we have really thought about this or not, the principal reason why people seek death for their unborn children, for their enemies, for themselves, is because they do not believe that their life has value. They do not believe that the lives of other human beings have value. They don't believe that there is a God who cares about them. Well, one of the biggest contributors to this diabolical depression and despair that is taking over the world is this idea which is drummed into all of us. I'm sorry to say in Catholic schools almost as much as in secular schools, that we are in fact sitting on a speck of dirt in a remote corner of a vast universe and that we're a kind of an accident or afterthought after 13.7 years, 13.7 billion years of cosmic evolution. Whether anybody reflects on this or not, this is a very depressing way to look at oneself, and it is completely false. And Dr. Smith shows that the empirical evidence has now accumulated to the point where it is simply undeniable that the Earth is at or near the center of the entire universe, mm. and there are many, many bodies of evidence, uh, gamma ray bursts, quasars, galaxies, binary stars, hot and cold temperature regions in space, all of these things are, believe it or not, aligned in relation to the Earth and the plane of the Earth and the Sun. This is not hyperbole. This is hard scientific fact. And this is just one of many, many treasures that viewers can take and derive from this DVD series, which will confirm them in the truth that you are the apple of God's eye. This is the only place where God became a man. This is the only place where the mother of God gave birth to the son of God. You have um, infinite value in the sight of God, and so do all of your human brothers and sisters at whatever stage of development. Hmm. Now, you mentioned something very interesting there, because I think a lot of the people who will have, scientists even, uh, who will have recognized the fakes and the nonsense might be willing to concede, okay, maybe this molecules to man evolution isn't, isn't, uh, isn't kosher, but very few of them are willing to accept the, the uh, notion that the universe isn't just billions of years old, that dinosaurs became extinct 65 million years ago. How do the scientists involved with Foundations Restored in your work tackle those topics? Certainly. Well, um, the first thing that we have to do, and we do this in the DVD series, is to show how the idea of long ages came to be accepted. Because the average person is given the impression, as I was, even though I was supposedly educated in very excellent institutions, we are given the impression that the conclusion that the Earth and the universe are billions of years old is some kind of straightforward inference from empirical science. That is not the case. 
as we document in the DVD series, the actual sequence of events was, first you had the philosophical revolution, where Descartes and Immanuel Kant and the so-called Enlightenment philosophers simply assumed that we could explain everything in terms of the same natural processes that are going on now. And then on that assumption, because that's not a straightforward conclusion from anything that we observe in nature, from that assumption, Charles Lyell and James Hutton and their disciples revolutionized the new science of geology because they said, well, if everything is the same, if everything's been the same from the beginning, then obviously there never was anything like a global flood. That must just be a fairy tale. So we have to be able to explain everything that we see in the rocks all over the earth in terms of the same gradual localized processes that we see going on now. And so, of course, when they looked at big sedimentary rock formations like the Grand Canyon, they assumed that these things must have taken enormous periods of time to form. But that was not the result of any kind of empirical research. They had no facilities for doing real empirical research in the field of sedimentology. And we show in the DVD series that since scientists have developed those kinds of facilities, we've been able to show empirically that Lyle and Hutton had no proper understanding of how sediments are laid down in the real world, mm. and that when you apply the discoveries that we've made from actual empirical research in the field of sedimentology, it's easy to explain the huge sedimentary rock formations all over the earth, like the Grand Canyon, as having been laid down very, very rapidly in the, or as a consequence of the global flood. And that's a much better and much more complete explanation for what we see than the Lyellian geology. But what happened? Lyell was a very good salesman for his ideas. Darwin took them on board and they became mainstream. And so without any kind of proof that the earth was billions of years old, it was simply assumed that if it required these long ages of time to lay down the sedimentary rocks all over the earth, well then obviously the earth had to be very ancient and then everything else in the universe had to be even more ancient than that. Only then was the science of radiometric dating invented at the very end of the 19th century. And so at that point, all the radiometric dating results were shoehorned into this geological framework that had been constructed pretty much from speculation before the end of the 19th century. And everything else that was taken on board in terms of empirical research was forced into the framework that was developed by Darwin and Lyle and their disciples in the 19th century. So that's the first thing that everybody needs to understand. Now, when you understand this, then it becomes much easier to, to recognize that radiometric dating 
which is the principal means that is used to supposedly prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that the Earth is 4.5 billion years old and that mm -hmm. the universe is 13.7 or 13.8 billion years old um, in, in conjunction with other observations of redshift from stars which are interpreted in a certain way. What people need to understand is all of these radiometric dating methods that are used to arrive at ages of hundreds of millions or billions of years are not straightforward observations. They are based on several unprovable and actually quite unreasonable assumptions. And when those assumptions are examined and found to be unreasonable, it becomes possible to see that it's actually much more reasonable to explain everything that we see in terms of the chronology derived from the Holy Scriptures, which is the chronology that was accepted by all the fathers, doctors, popes, and council fathers up until very recent times, in complete opposition to the pagan intellectuals of the patristic era, most of whom believed in something like evolution over long ages and had uh, various you know, ideas about millions and billions of years uh, having gone on in the past. One of the great examples, though, that we focus on in the DVD series is that the most reliable radiometric dating method that we have is actually carbon-14, because carbon is present in all living things, and carbon-14, which is a radioactive isotope of carbon, has a very short half-life, meaning that it decays very rapidly back into nitrogen-14, and therefore uh, Livy, who got the Nobel Prize for developing the carbon-14 dating method, realized that he could actually take objects from artifacts of known age from historical records, like, for example, a piece of wood from the tomb of an Egyptian mummy, and by looking at the amount of carbon-14 in that sample and the ratio between carbon-14 and carbon-12, he could actually make a realistic estimate of when that particular object uh, died. Uh, let's say if it, if it was a tree from which the wood had been extracted. Now, the interesting thing is, because carbon-14 has such a short half-life, after 50 to 100,000 years, there will not be one single atom of carbon-14 left in the remains of any plant, animal, or human being. <laughs> and therefore, if the evolution story is true, then virtually everything in the entire so-called geologic column should be completely carbon-14 dead. There shouldn't be one single atom of carbon-14 left in the remains of any plant, animal, or human that is more than 100,000 years old. <laughs> but what does, what does a good scientist do? Does he just accept that this is the conventional wisdom? Or does he put it to the test? The good scientist will test and validate the conventional wisdom and see if he can falsify it. And this is exactly what 
a team of scientists affiliated with the Kolbe Center has done over the last 20 years, and we report on this in detail in the DVD series. They have collected dinosaur bones from many different locations. They have sent portions of these dinosaur bones to world-class laboratories where they have a machine called an accelerated mass spectrometer that can actually count the number of carbon-14 and carbon-12 atoms in a sample. And we have been able to demonstrate that every single one of those dinosaur bones contains substantial amounts of carbon-14, which proves that these dinosaurs lived thousands of years ago and did not become extinct 65 million years ago, as all of us were taught in school. And in fact, we, we go on to show in the DVD series that the scientific literature is full, and I'm talking about peer-reviewed scientific journals, are full of credible reports of carbon-14 being found in the remains of plants and animals at every level of the so-called geological column, even in right. things that are supposed to be hundreds of millions of years old. And what does this tell us? It tells us that all of the remains of these plants and animals are actually only thousands of years old, and they were all deposited at more or less the same time. And that, of course, is 100% consistent with the sacred history of Genesis, which tells us that the entire earth was deluged during Noah's flood. And this explains why we find the fossil record that we do. And we go into that in, in great detail in another episode where we focus on evidence for a global flood. Mm -hmm. So now that we've had, um, you know, we could have had a lot of great research done on questions like what happened to the dinosaurs, but people have been uh, so taken with the false science of evolution that they said, oh, it's 65 million years ago and all that. What did happen to the dinosaurs based on what your research has shown? Well, we know that at the time of Noah, God miraculously directed to him representatives of each kind of land animal and that would have included each kind of dinosaur. Uh, however, it's important to recognize that the average size of a dinosaur was only about the size of a cow. The great big Brachiosaurus-type dinosaurs were the exception, not the rule. And of course, with that kind of dinosaur, Noah would have taken juveniles. He wouldn't have taken a, a great big T-Rex or Brachiosaurus on board the ark, even though there was plenty of room. Uh, there was the equivalent of 300 freight cars uh, of room for the animals and their, their food and water on the ark. And so, the vast majority of dinosaurs were actually drowned in the waters and sediments of Noah's flood. And this is completely in line with what paleontologists see in the field, because most dinosaur graveyards consist of dinosaurs, uh, disarticulated bones mixed in with the bones of marine creatures. And when intact skeletons of dinosaurs are found, 
they are usually found in a posture in which they are trying to gasp for air because they are being drowned in the sediments of the rising floodwaters. We also find um, many distinctive patterns in the uh, fossil record, such as dinosaur tracks at one level, and then above those tracks, we find the actual bones, in many cases, disarticulated and mixed together with the remains of marine creatures. <laughs> well, what kind of local flood is going to be able to mix together the bones of land-dwelling dinosaurs with marine creatures? Obviously, there's nothing like that going on today, and there never has been anything like that except for Noah's flood, and yet we find this all over the world. Now, the, the dinosaurs that came off the ark after the ark landed were also faced with a much more challenging environment than existed in the pre-flood world. And those dinosaurs that were aggressive, if not to humans, then to their livestock, were seen as a threat. And this is why in people groups all over the world, we have traditions, they're usually called legends, of, of heroes like Beowulf, for example, who fought with creatures that are described exactly like dinosaurs, and they were rightly considered heroes because these creatures, the ones that were like the, of the order of T-Rex, were definitely a serious threat to, to, the, to human society. And so between the harsh environmental conditions that dinosaurs had to contend with after they came off the ark, because the flood was immediately succeeded by an ice age, and I say an ice age because there was only one ice age that lasted perhaps 500 to 700 years. Obviously, there were some um, variations in, in temperature and, and glaciation during the one, one ice age, but there weren't these multiple ice ages that we were taught they had it taken place when we were in school. And those dinosaurs that could survive the harsh environmental conditions and were any kind of a threat to human beings or livestock were, were hunted down. And uh, if you've read the poem Beowulf, Grendel perfectly matches the description of some kind of T-Rex dinosaur. In fact, Beowulf kills Grendel because he's able to get in close to her and rip one of her little arms out of its socket so that she bleeds to death. Hmm. And these are not fantasies. Beowulf is talking about historical people, and all over the world we find very accurate drawings, sculptures, mosaics, cave paintings of all different kinds of dinosaurs. And these are very clear evidence that human beings after the flood lived with and encountered these creatures. Now, Carl Sagan was honest enough to admit that there were all kinds of drawings and sculptures and other artifacts that gave very realistic depictions of different kinds of dinosaurs. 
But being a totally dogmatic evolutionist, his explanation for that was that we have a genetic memory of when we lived in the age of reptiles. And that's why humans all over the world have been able to make these very accurate drawings and sculptures and cave paintings of, of different kinds of dinosaurs. But uh, that doesn't sound like a very scientific explanation to me. And in fact, if that were the case, then you would expect that people who lived back in the 1600s, when, when many people were literate, would have uh, at least a few of them gotten up in the middle of the night with a, a dream of being chased down the streets of London or Paris by a T-Rex. But we don't hear anything about that in any of the literature of the Western world until the first amateur paleontologists began digging up dinosaur skeletons and, and assembling them. And only at that point did the name dinosaur come into the English language. Prior to that, the word that was used in the English-speaking world to describe dinosaurs was dragon. And if you read some of the ancient accounts of dragons, you will have no doubt that a number of them are definitely talking about some kind of dinosaur. Now, what's, we don't go into this point in the DVD series, but it is very possible that even today, in certain remote areas of the world, there are still dinosaurs that have been able to survive because they're in extremely remote environments and do not have much contact with human beings. Probably the most likely candidate that I know of is in New Guinea. I have a friend who's a religious brother. His uncle actually is a pilot who flies people, missionaries, uh, teachers, scientists, doctors, medical workers, to very remote locations in New Guinea. And he tells me that there are very, very competent, reliable, honest witnesses who have given very sober testimony to having seen a pterodactyl, some kind of flying dinosaur. And these, these descriptions that they give agree with each other, and they also agree with descriptions that are given by the indigenous people. So perhaps uh, under um, Our Lady's patronage, some adventurous young Catholics will go out to New Guinea and become the first ones to videotape one of these surviving dinosaurs and put another nail in the coffin of molecules to man evolution mythology. But the short answer to your question is all the dinosaurs that weren't on the ark were drowned in the flood or the sediments of the flood. Those that survived had to deal with very harsh environmental conditions and they either died out or were hunted down and the few that may still survive in remote locations like New Guinea or in the Congo um, are in extremely remote environments where it's been very difficult to actually uh, have any final definitive video or, or other proof that they still exist. Hmm. Wow, fascinating. So there's lots and lots in your, in your DVD, but in the series. Now, I just wanted to touch on one more thing before we, uh, before we ended off, and that is about the major concerns. I mean, you, there's all sorts of concern here, but what's the concern for the church? Yes, the, the Pope 
who really saw the danger of the that would that was posed by this molecules to man evolution hypothesis very clearly was Pope St. Pius X. And in his encyclical Pascendi in 1907, he announced that we now had in the church the worst heresy in the history of Christianity, modernism. Mm -hmm. But in that same encyclical, he says that evolution is, as it were, the principal doctrine of the modernists. This is very important to understand. Why is modernism the worst heresy and why is evolution its principal doctrine? If we don't understand this, we cannot understand what is going on in the church in the world today. Modernism is the worst heresy because all other heresies in the history of the church added something, subtracted something, distorted something or a few things, but left most of the faith intact. Modernism does not do that. Why? Because since evolution is, as Pope St. Pius X said, the principal doctrine of the modernists, modernism is based on the idea that everything is evolving. There are no stable natures. Everything is in flux. And therefore, St. Pius X saw that if the modernists gain control, they will destroy everything. Because they're going to say that the liturgy that was good for our, our forefathers, it's no longer adequate for us because we've evolved into a new situation. The marriage law, the, the, the moral doctrine that was appropriate 500 years ago, it's no longer adequate because we've evolved into a new situation. And he saw that with this kind of evolution-based modernist thinking, nothing would be left intact. And this is exactly what we see. What do the people like Father James Martin stand on when they go all over the world telling us that the church has to change her teaching on sodomy? He always bases his talk on the quote-unquote fact of evolution that we've evolved and that the church has already had to change her teaching, he claims, for example, on usury, which is false. The church has never changed her teaching on usury. Rightly understood, it's exactly the same that it was in the Middle Ages. Mm -hmm. But he's able to get away with promoting this evil because he assumes that everybody accepts without any argument that evolution is a fact, everything's evolving, and therefore the doctrines of the church have to evolve along with everything else. Now, what is, what is the worst effect of this, though, is, is not that the liturgy and, and catechesis and evangelization are being corrupted, as, as terrible as that is. The worst consequence of this is that the character of God is, is being distorted, is being impugned. Because if it were true that God used 
a process of hundreds of millions of years of evolution to evolve a one-celled organism into a body suitable to receive a human soul, then that would mean that God is the author of hundreds of millions of years of death and deformity and disease and extinctions before the original sin of Adam. And it would also mean that God allowed his church to teach a completely false account of the origins of man and the universe and the early history of mankind for 1900 years and then enlightened us not by raising up saints and scholars from within the, the, the Catholic Church to tell us the truth. Rather, apparently, God had to raise up godless people like Charles Lyell and Ernst Haeckel and T.H. Huxley who hated the church and wanted to destroy her and had to use them to enlighten us so that our church leaders could finally understand how God actually created the world. Well, this is, this is a blasphemy. And, and, the, and the most terrible consequence of this blasphemy is that very few young Catholics are able to understand the character of God correctly. And they are leaving the church by the millions because this presentation of the faith is totally incoherent. It does not make any sense. What young person in his right mind would stay in the Catholic Church if the Catholic Church taught an account of the origins of man and the universe for 1900 years at a very high level of authority, which turns out to be completely wrong, and the ones who actually enlightened the church are the godless scientists. <laughs> the young people aren't stupid. They're going to figure, well, then it's the godless scientists who know what they're talking about, so why not just follow them, because then you can do whatever you please, because you're not accountable to anybody, and you don't need to be concerned about following any of these burdensome rules and teachings of the Catholic Church. The good news is, we have found that wherever young people are given a good defense of the traditional Catholic doctrine of creation, and are shown that sound philosophy and sound natural science confirm what the Church has always taught on creation and the early history of the world, those young people grow up with a strong faith. They don't succumb to the ten temptations and pressures of the anti-culture of death, and they become strong leaders, strong pro-life leaders, as priests, as religious, as, as leaders of holy Catholic families. So, the reality is, with your help, we can turn things around very quickly. <laughs> and right now in Africa, we have bishops who want us to come and present this truth to entire dioceses That's because great. they see what has happened to the young people in the Western world and they don't want the same thing to happen to their youth. Absolutely. So they are inviting us to come and train all of their teachers so that their young people can be given the truth and can understand that sound theology, sound philosophy, and sound natural science confirm 
the truth of the sacred history of Genesis and the traditional doctrine of creation that is the foundation of our holy Catholic faith. Absolutely. Well, that is awesome. Hugh, I want to thank you so much for being with us on this episode of the John Henry Weston Show. We're going to have the links to the Colby Center and to your Foundations Restored, where everybody can get this video series. Very important to get. Uh, down in the links below in the blog at LifeSite. And uh, Hugh, I want to thank you again for being with us with an absolutely fascinating presentation. May God bless you. And thank you. May God bless all of you as well. We'll see you next time.